You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. Please join with me in turning to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, and tonight we come to the 53rd verse. We will read to verse 58, Matthew chapter 13. Verse 53, now it happened that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there and he came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers? James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they were taking offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Let's ask our God's blessing on our time in His Word tonight. Lord, every time we gather around Your Word, it is a blessing for us. We sing the truth with each other, and in many ways to each other. There's mutual instruction that takes place as we sing songs full of the truth of Your Word. We remind one another of the truth as we have Scripture reading and as we pray, and even, Lord, as we speak with one another on the Lord's Day and encourage each other and exhort each other with what we know to be true. But we're especially thankful for the times that we have to open Your Word together and to study it line upon line so that we meet in a systematic way with Your mind. We thank You for this. We are changed by this. And we ask for Your blessing upon it even again this evening. May the time of preaching be in demonstration of the power of the Spirit of God. May your word go forth this evening in a way that takes all of our attention and focuses it upon you and upon our Savior. May you encourage the hearts of your people. May you protect the lives of your people. May you deliver us from the snares of the evil one. May you give us continued strength for the journey. May you purify us, Lord, and protect us through the word proclaimed. We will thank you for all that you accomplish in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Unbelief often exists where it has the least excuse. You often find it where it ought not to exist because it has been given many privileges that are being refused. Unbelief can exist where it has been given tremendous proofs. Unbelief can exist where it has been given clear explanation of the truth. It has been exposed to clear evidence. It has met with powerful confirmations of the truth. 
Unbelief can exist where, where God has been mercifully patient with it. Proofs, explanations, evidence, confirmations multiply. And yet unbelief continues in that particular life. What it reveals is that sinful unbelief, I mean, God reveals the truth, we are exposed to it, and we refuse it. Sinful unbelief is not an information problem. It's a rebellion problem. I think we oftentimes hope, we want to believe it is an information problem. If I can just explain the truth of the Word of God in a clearer fashion, if I can just provide more and more proof texts, if I can give more and more evidence in the form of apologetics, then certainly the light will come on and certainly the life will turn and, and the person will change their position because surely this is an information problem I'm running into. And sadly, what we are reminded of is sinful unbelief is really not an information problem. It is a rebellion problem. People refusing what they could know, what they should know, because they don't want to know it. They don't, they don't want to believe it. And sadly, wherever you find that kind of unbelief, if it is persisted in, if it doesn't change, it goes on to a very sad and woeful judgment. We're reminded of that in our verses tonight because what we meet with here is a unique kind of unbelief. I mentioned it this morning as I pray for us. We heard Abby's testimony. We witnessed her baptism. We heard how having been raised in a Christian family, she comes to faith in Christ during her high school years. And then the Lord is at work even more in her college years. That's the kind of story that you hear a lot in a church like ours. Children raised in a Christian family not really appreciating the light that they're exposed to. It is a familiar kind of unbelief. In fact, it is an unbelief that sometimes exists behind the justification of familiarity. And I'll explain more of what I mean by that here in a moment. But that's what we see in our verses, familiar unbelief. Our text begins with a departure. Verse 53, now it happened that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. He's been teaching parables in Capernaum. For some time now, Capernaum has served like his home base for ministry. He was teaching these parables, as you'll remember, on the seashore beside the sea. Matthew 13, verse 1, that same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him. So they got into a boat and sat down and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables saying a sower went out to sow, and on it, on it goes. He's done a lot of teaching in Capernaum. He has performed many miracles in that area. But sadly, what, the, what Matthew 13 reveals is, for the most part, that has resulted in the revelation of unbelieving hearts. They, they have heard the teaching, but they don't believe. They have seen the miracles, but they don't believe. And that unbelief has been judged with parables. Those parables having to do with the mysteries of the kingdom. What, what is going to happen during this age between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Messiah? 
And in those parables, what our Lord revealed is the, the word of the kingdom is going to meet with a lot of rejection. Four kinds of soils, only one represents the believer. He taught about the coexistence of the sons of the evil one and the sons of the kingdom until they're finally separated at the end of the age. And so Christianity is going to be in the minority until Jesus returns. Yet the kingdom of heaven will advance throughout the earth and permeate the darkness. It will influence wherever it spreads. And those who are saved see the value of it and respond to it according to its true value, like a pearl of great value or a treasure hidden in a field. All of this will go on until the judgment arrives, and the judgment is certainly coming, so that we must be faithful to take everything God has revealed to us and declare it while we have opportunity to do so. That's what we saw this morning. And now, following those parables, Matthew presents us with some scenes that demonstrate the absolute truthfulness of what Christ has declared in these parables. Because we see our Lord meeting with that unbelief. We see Him meeting with hardened soil. People who've been exposed to the, to the greatest light. People who have been given the greatest familiarity with the Son of God. And yet their hearts are hard. Jesus returns to where He grew up. He leaves Capernaum. Now, verse 54, he returns to his hometown. He came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they were taking offense at him. He leaves Capernaum. He comes to Nazareth. We're not told what takes him to Nazareth. You will remember in chapter 12, his mother and his siblings came looking for him. Matthew 12, 46. So maybe he's gone home to see them. But this is the place where Joseph and Mary took up residence after leaving Egypt. This is where they settled. Matthew 2.19, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod. He was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. So that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is where Jesus grew up. This is where his father was known. And his mother was known. And his family was known. Most commentators believe that what we have in our verses is paralleled in Luke chapter 4. You remember in Luke 4, Jesus takes the scroll and reads it there in the synagogue in Nazareth and he explains the meaning of it and he talks about the sovereign grace of God with respect to where God's word will be received. And they are made so angry that they try to kill him. They drive him to the edge of a cliff. They want to throw him off. 
Many people believe that this passage is referring to that, to that same encounter. But I think there's good reason to question that. It might be parallel, but it's also true to say that it might not be. D.A. Carson comment, he says this, it is almost universally assumed that this is the same rejection recorded in Luke 4, 16 through 30, which ties the event to Old Testament prophecy. Though not unlikely, this is not certain. Unlike Luke, Mark, and Matthew mentioned no hostility so great as to lead people to kill Jesus. If these were two incidents, the one recorded but the first two evangelists may reflect an abating of instinctive rage as the village's most famous son has grown in reputation in the area. Carson's saying that if this is in fact an additional encounter, then this has taken place later, probably just a little less than a year later. And Christ's ministry now is better known and he has grown in reputation. So perhaps their anger is gone, maybe a little more open to their famous son, and this would represent a second opportunity. He came the first time you wanted to kill him, he comes again. How will you respond to him? Verse 54 says, he had begun teaching them in their synagogue. This is what has not changed. They are still closed to him. They still don't believe him. How would these people so familiar with his upbringing, so familiar with his family, how would they respond to what he has done, to what he is teaching? Well, the Bible says they were astonished at it. Strong word, actually. Amazement that's almost overwhelming is the idea. I think we could say they were blown away by him. They couldn't believe it. Their astonishment is put into words when they say, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Astonished at his teaching, astonished at his deeds, astonished at his wisdom, astonished at his powers. But when they say, where did he get it from? It really represents skepticism. They know what is being said about him. They know what Christ has claimed about himself. They know what these miracles are meant to point out, point to, the fact they're signs. What all this demands is belief in him as Messiah, but they wonder out loud about how to explain him. Where did this come from? Which amounts to a denial of what all of the evidence demanded. They acknowledge his wisdom, they acknowledge his mighty works, but they think him to be too common to be the Messiah. This is the carpenter's son. I believe it's Mark's account that has them saying, this is the carpenter, and that would be very common because it wasn't uncommon for a son just to follow in the footsteps of his father's profession. This is a carpenter's family, a carpenter's son, and we know his mother and we know his siblings, and we know that he's from our town. Messiah can't come from our town. R.T. France says, it is again a question of authority. Such wisdom and such mighty works require a more than human origin. 
The same question has already led to the accusation of demonic power, and it will arise again in chapter 21, verse 23, close quote. We don't want to acknowledge that what we're meeting with is God's testimony that Jesus is the Messiah. So we need to find some other explanation. Where did this come from? This wisdom, these mighty works. And you see the skepticism in what follows because it really seems out of place when you first read it. They're marveling, they're astounded, they're astonished at His wisdom and His powers. Where did He get all these things from? Verse 56, verse 57, and they were taking offense at Him. They stumbled over Him. Their familiarity with Him led them to the conclusion that He could not be who He claimed to be. He could not be the one whom others said that He was. Unwilling to believe what the evidence demanded. Isn't that something? They will acknowledge the evidence, but not pronounce the verdict. They can't deny what they're hearing and seeing, but they refuse to draw the right conclusion. And that response to Jesus has never really changed, has it? This is what sinners still do with Jesus. Many sinners, they will acknowledge the evidence, but not submit to the conclusion, not submit to the verdict. How many times have you presented God's Word to someone in a way that it should seal the deal, right? I mean, it should settle the issue. I've got a question, and you answer the question, and you answer it clearly with multiplied proof text. I mean, the question has been answered, which then only leads to another question, and another question, and another demand. Sometimes the brick wall you run into resists actively. Sometimes the brick wall resists passively. Sometimes the brick wall resists politely. Sometimes there's resistance that is hostile, but it all amounts to the same thing. I will not believe because I don't want to believe. There isn't any amount of evidence you can present to me that will change my mind. It's not an information problem. It's a rebellion problem. It's not a lack of evidence. It's a lack of desire. Because if it is the truth, they know it requires something from them they are unwilling to give. Contrary to the ones who are saved, who meet with the kingdom of God, and they say, there is the most valuable reality in all the world. I'll sell everything I possess to have it. This person is unwilling to part with what they believe is their treasure because they don't see the truth as very valuable, unwilling to pay the price. Familiar unbelief. How does Jesus respond to this? They were taking offense at him, verse 57, but Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. He responds with a proverb this, this is something, this is a spiritual reality so common that it became proverbial. This is not just with Jesus. 
I mean, this is the crescendo of such unbelief. This is the chief example of such unbelief. But it's not just with Jesus that you find people trying to evade the truth by their familiarity with the messenger. A prophet is honored. A prophet is listened to. A prophet is respected, except in his own hometown. That's the proverb. Except in his own family. Sometimes people trying to evade the truth based on their relationship with the messenger, their knowledge of the messenger, their familiarity with the messenger. It might be in the realm of friendship, unwilling to hear the truth, and so they excuse their unwillingness based upon their knowledge of you as their friend. Or maybe it's just as simple as acquaintance. I mean, you're from my town. You work at my job. You're from my high school. Sometimes the familiarity of a family. It's just mom and dad. At some point, every parent experiences at least a taste of this when someone else's parents say the same thing you say and they're wise and you've been dumb until that moment. You've been saying this all along, and now Johnny's parents say it, and your child thinks it's the first time they've ever heard it. And you're like, isn't this what I've been saying to you all along? They don't even remember it, because you're just mom and dad. How many times has someone said something like this? The hardest people to witness to are the members of your own family. You can share the gospel with other people, but you try to talk to your dad or your mom or your brother or your sister and you just meet with, in every way, body language, facial expression, and then actual response, just a closed door. What is on display in all of those situations, including what happened with our Savior, is a lack of spiritual vision. Seeing things in such an earthly way that you don't recognize the hand of God These people are trying to downplay the evidence. We hear your words. We've heard of your deeds. We've seen your deeds. But let's immediately shift the focus to what we know about you. Your father, your mother, your siblings, even your lack of theological training. I think about this based on John 7, verse 14. It says, About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Where did this come from? It came from God. And you can't evade what you're seeing and hearing by who his father, his earthly father, his adopted father in the case of Joseph, who who this was or who his mother was or who his brothers and sisters were. You're trying to downplay the evidence based upon something else. Let's get rid of the truth. 
And at the same time, what they're trying to evade is the authority that stands behind the evidence. So it's not just what he has said and done, but whose authority stands behind this? So that I don't want to associate him in my thinking, attitudes, decision-making. I don't want to associate him with what he has said and done. I want to associate him with the people I know that he's related to, where he came from, with whom he was related, seeking in that way to avoid the message, seeking in that way to avoid the authority that stands behind the message. Now, let me give you a very important spiritual lesson. If you're going to live a life that honors God, you have to have the vision to see the authority that stands behind the message being delivered by the human instrument. Let me say it again. If you and I are going to live lives that honor God, we have to have the kind of spiritual vision that recognizes the hand of God, that recognizes the source of the message, that recognizes the authority of the message, that recognizes the authority standing behind the human instrument that God uses to bring that message to us. Now, of course, in Christ's case, we're talking about God in human flesh. The authority of Jesus was the authority of God. Jesus was and is God. But even in our case, people try. When you talk about just human instruments, God uses people to bring the message of truth to us, not just in salvation, but throughout the rest of our Christian life. God uses people to bring his message to us. We have to have the vision to see beyond the instrument and to see God, to see his hand, to see that he's the author of the message and his authority stands behind the message. Do you see that? Can you recognize when God's messenger might be your mom or dad? Young people, do you recognize that, that God uses mom and dad? God uses your father and your mother to teach you, to direct you, to correct you, to guide you, to instruct you, to shepherd you. Do you just see mom and dad or do you, do you see God at work through your parents? The messenger might be the person you're married to. Do you recognize that when your husband or your wife brings Scripture to you, they're an instrument of the living God? I mean, the message they bring, if it's true, if it's rightly interpreted, if it's delivered to you. Now, God is at work. Can you see that? Or do you just have the eyes to see the person you're married to? a brother, a sister, an untrained preacher or layman. What are your credentials? Where did you go to school? What are your degrees? You do realize none of that matters if what they're giving to you is the Word of God. Spurgeon was converted on a snowy day when the preacher couldn't make it to the church, converted under the preaching of an untrained layman. Perhaps the most well-known, most powerful Baptist preacher in modern times converted under an untrained preacher. 
God's messenger to you might be your boss or your coworker. Might be the pastor that you've known for many, many years. One of the things you have to be careful of when you exist in a church like ours for years and years and years, we have the privilege, what a blessing, to walk together as brethren for years and years and years together. What happens is we get to know each other on multiple levels, including friendship. You have the eyes that allow you to distinguish between my relationship to this person as my friend and my relationship to this person as a God-ordained instrument to shepherd me. Can I see both? Can I, can I understand both kinds of relationship so that I respond biblically to what I'm meeting with? Because you can mark this down. One of the ways that Satan ruins souls is to make people feel okay about their unbelief based on their familiarity with the messenger. It's okay for me to disregard this because I know you. As I said, in Christ's case, what they're directing their attention to has nothing to do with sin. Nothing to do with sin. Who his father was, nothing to do with sin. Who his mother was, his siblings, where he grew up, none of that had to do, even his work before he enters the ministry, a carpenter, none of that has to do with sin. But in our case, Satan will go beyond even just familiarity. He will direct our attention to frailty, their weaknesses, their sins, their oddities, their quirkiness. I just want us to understand something. Our sins will never be excused when we refuse God's truth based upon the frailty or the failings or the sins or the quirkiness or the oddities of the messenger. You will never be excused by God because of the weakness of the instrument that He uses to bring you His perfect Word. His Word has authority all on its own. John MacArthur put it very well. He said, as a means of escape or self-justification, Unbelief diverts attention away from the truth. The genuine seeker may have many questions about the gospel before he's ready to commit himself to Christ, but his sincerity is proven by his willingness to accept the truth once it is explained. Right? I mean, people can say, you know, I just want my questions. Well, if your questions are sincere, then once you get the answers, your questions have been answered. And that proves your sincerity. He goes on to say, each new ray of light leads him closer to belief. For the confirmed unbeliever, on the other hand, each new truth prompts him to raise another objection. And his argument against that truth pushes him still further from salvation. It is characteristic of unbelief to disguise itself. And in order to hide their self-satisfaction and refusal to accept the clear evidence about Jesus, the people of Nazareth dismissed him on the basis of having known him since he was a child and of knowing his family as ordinary citizens of the community. They allowed pride, jealousy, resentment, embarrassment, and a host of other wicked and petty feelings to fill their hearts and become barriers to salvation. He can't be the Messiah. We know him. Well, this person can't be the instrument of God teaching me the truth because I know them. 
That's just mom or dad. That's just brother or sister. That's just pastor. That's just my friend. That's just my coworker. So what do we have in our text? We have unbelief, unbelief, sinful rebellion, hiding behind the justification of familiarity, dismissing the evidence, dismissing the message, dismissing the authority represented in the message because of familiarity. And my question for you and for my own life is, what is your unbelief hiding behind? Where is it in your life that someone has been bringing you the truth and you have been refusing it? You have been stubborn in the face of it. And you've got all your excuses, all your reasons why you don't need to listen to the people who are bringing it to you. And maybe it's based upon the fact you know them so well, or maybe it's based upon the frailty you've seen in them, or even the sins you've seen in them, the inconsistencies you've seen in them, the imperfections you have seen in them. I want you to understand it will not justify you at the judgment bar of God. Do you recognize that? That you're responsible for the truth even when the instrument God chooses to bring it to you is not impressive to you? Can you see the hand of God on the instruments that He's using? Do you hear Him? This text, as well as everything Matthew's giving us, is meant to focus our eyes on Jesus. And so we think about that. We think about how we, we sometimes will use the frailties and the failings of the instruments God chooses to use to evade the truth, but in their case, they're standing right in front of the brightest light. No sin, no failings, no inconsistencies, nothing they can legitimately point to as a reason to distance themselves from the message based on the messenger. Nothing. And yet they won't believe And I want to finish by saying that in many ways, even though in our case we're meeting with the message through frail messengers, the issue is really the same in this way. The one we're presenting is Christ. The truth we're presenting is Christ's. The will of God on display in the Scriptures, this is the will of Christ. And while you might be able to point to a thousand failures in your mom or dad or in the brother or sister trying to reach into your life or the pastors of this church, what you cannot take issue with is the Jesus of whom we speak. You will certainly find clay feet in all of us, but you'll find nothing in his life but perfect righteousness. What harm has He done to you? How has He failed you? How does He fall short? Which means that when when someone with clay feet brings His Word to you, you are blind to think you're dealing with the messenger, the instrument. You're dealing with the one being presented. Which is why if you reject that truth, you'll stand one day before God without excuse. You can certainly take issue with the human instruments, but you can't take issue with the Lord. So what will you do with Him? What will you do with Him? 
One final thought. I would exhort, especially young people, you're on my heart today and tonight. I want to exhort you to recognize something. That it is your perfect Savior if you know Jesus. It is the perfect shepherd if you don't know Jesus yet. You need Him as your Savior. It is the perfect Son of God who has ordained to use the imperfect vessels of your parents to teach you, discipline you, lead you, guide you, shepherd you. It is the perfect Savior who has chosen church to use not perfect men, but qualified men to shepherd your soul. In other words, I'm exhorting the church tonight to recognize even when we're talking about the frailties of the instruments, God is the one who's chosen to use those frail instruments. And to refuse those relationships is to refuse His will which means that we thank Him for such a marvelous work that He can use so many frail things, weak things, to put His power on display as He does His good work in our lives. Uses imperfect parents, but He guides young people in the faith. Uses imperfect pastors, but He guides His people in the faith. Uses imperfect spouses, and yet we encourage each other in the faith. May God grant us the eyes to see God's work as He makes use of instruments that are not yet glorified. Amen? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank You for this warning about a kind of unbelief that hides behind familiarity. Grant us, Lord, the eyes to see Your hand, Your presence, Your authority, Your truth being brought to us even when the instruments are such that we could find fault with them. Or that we might feel that they are simply our peer from the same town, from the same area, the same kind of commonness. Help us, Lord, to see you always and to recognize that that what we're dealing with in your word are the perfections of your Son. If we could find fault with every messenger of the Christian faith, we could find no fault with the Christ. So with that in mind, Lord, make us a people submissive to the truth as it is brought to us in the ways that you've ordained. And we will give you thanks for what you do in our lives as a result. In Jesus' name, amen.